Hello, and welcome to Connected by Life. I am your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and clinical stakeholders in regards to organ donation and transplantation. Today's episode is titled The Donor Care Center, The Historical Perspective. This is part one of two, and we will be discussing organ procurement organization-based recovery centers' impact upon organ recovery and transplantation. Today's guest is Adam Keaton. He is a critical care nurse and Lopez Organ Recovery Manager. So today's topic is the Donor Care Center, the historical perspective. And the reason why I say historical perspective is, you know, we've been hearing about it. Now we're experiencing it. You know, for over 20 years, this has been something um, that, you know, we're, we're seeing more of. And so you know, now it's something that we're experiencing ourselves. And so I'm really glad that I have you, Adam, you know, as uh, someone that is managing the donor care unit. So, you know, if you could kind of explain to the audience you know, what exactly is a donor care center and donor care unit? First off, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be part of uh, the podcast. Donor care centers or donor care units are centralized facilities that are operated by the organ procurement organizations or OPOs in which uh, the workup, the allocation of the organs, and eventually the surgical recovery of organs for transplant happens. Uh, these can be either be a standalone facility like ours is, or it could be a facility that's built inside, uh, say, a hospital uh, that the OPO uh, operates independently. Yeah, and so when we're talking about all the OPOs, I think it's important to reference that, you know, there's 56 across the United States. And now, as far as for the donor care centers, you know, we're, we're seeing, I think there's estimated of around 20. Um, you know, one of the things that I'd like for you to maybe talk on a little bit is just on, you know, how this transition became, you know, like it was recommended that this was something that more OPOs moved towards and where that came from. Yeah. So donor care centers have been gaining popularity over the last several years with more and more opening every year. I think we're up to about uh, 20 right now, uh, give or take a few with many more in the planning and building phases around the nation. Um, and there was a recent report, and um, people in the industry are familiar with it. It's the NASM report, which is the National Academies of uh, Science, Engineering, and Medicine, um, that highlighted some things about organ donation and transplantation, needs in the field, um, some uh, recommendations for how we can uh, do things better, better utilization of organs, you know, more lives saved. And one of the recommendations was actually uh, that every uh, OPO should be charged with operating a donor care center. Um, and I think that's because uh, looking at the data, um, they see that uh, donor care centers have better results in the long term. Uh, more organs transplanted per donor equals more lives saved. So in speaking of that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift a little bit because you know, one of the things I think just highlighting the fact of what this is, is basically transferring brain dead donors to this facility for management and recovery. Right. Okay. And so I want, I want to wait for the benefits secondary. I want to kind of talk about the initial phases. So, you know, you're going into this about four years ago. 
What were some of the early challenges that y'all experienced either prior to this evolving or in that initial stage? Lots of challenges. We were being charged with opening a mini hospital, if you will. Um, so all the things that come along with uh, uh, the building, the planning and building phases of, uh, of a healthcare facility, uh, we had to implement here uh, at, our, at our home base here in Covington. Um, so all those normal challenges you would have of outfitting a building for taking care of patients, um, bringing in the right equipment, working with vendors, all that thing were, were challenges on our part. Um, there were some additional challenges that uh, we faced in the hospital with our hospital partners, uh, which is natural. Uh, we have been doing the organ donation process the same way for many, many years since the inception of LOPA, right? So um, that process was always when the patient is uh, declared brain dead in the hospital and determined that they're a candidate for organ donation and uh, LOPA is brought in and obtains authorization from the family and starts the workup process. So we used all the hospital facilities for any testing that needed to be done. The donor was cared for in the intensive care unit in the hospital, just you know where they are already located. So the hospital staff was still involved and you know they often got to see the process as it went through its stages of the workup, the allocation, and then we brought the patient to surgery. And they really got a lot of more immediate feedback on, you know, what happened with the patient, what was the outcome, you know, how their their work directly impacted um, the outcome. Um, that was one thing. So, you know, doctors and nurses in the hospital, you know, care tremendously for their patients. And they want to know that that patient is being cared for at the same level throughout the, the process. With us taking the patient out of the hospital, they really wanted reassurance that the continuity of care was there, that the same level of care they had been providing for that patient uh, was gonna be continued throughout. So being able to show them the kind of facility that we had was very important to us. So what we did was make videos for them to show them the kind of facility that this patient was being transferred into, which if you've, of course you've been here you know, a million times, but they haven't. So for them to be able to see that this is a state-of-the-art facility, I mean, everything is top-notch from the furnishings to the equipment we use to the level of care we provide for the donor. I was going to say, I think, you know, visualization has to be of the utmost importance. One of the things that I, I heard early on prior to, the, you know, Lopez Donor Care Center being built was in other donor care centers and other OPOs was really some of the hospitals was wondering like, where is this patient going? And almost just being very protective, which you can appreciate in a different level. I, I heard one OPO representative that even told me that one of the hospitals thought like, are they just going to a metal building? Like it was that, you know, it was even down to that, that granular level of like, where are they going? And so I think what you're talking about uh, is that visualization given the virtual tour, the education that took place. The other thing is, too, that you talked about that I think is probably one of the most important things is just the culture that you built in a hospital because that is so important about, you know, connecting and growing your relationships and having 
staff from an executive level, physician level, you know, frontline level, everyone involved to support the process of donation because it's about those families. It's about those families that are lost a loved one. So I, you know, I commend you all on, on what you did to make sure that you're reassuring that not only are we continuing the care of the patient, but we're also, and I think that maybe you can speak on a little bit more, is the things that you were doing in the hospital you know, prior to the recovery, y'all weren't changing those things as far as for like family support and also some of the things that the staff would, would be involved in. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a, a number of things we do um, for our donors and donor families in the hospital um, that give both the donor family and hospital staff an opportunity to um, pay respect and, and honor that donor hero and the choice that they've made to save lives through donation. So, I mean, a few of the things we do is offer memory-making items to the family, um, such as uh, recordings of the patient's heartbeat, um, handprints, locks of hair, things like that, um, that they can keep with them as a keepsake to help remember their loved one. Uh, we still offer all that, as we, we always have. Um, in addition, uh, something that's really caught on in the last few years have been uh, donor honor walks. So when the patient is is going to be transferred to the operating room in the hospital, many hospitals will offer the family a donor walk where the donor family can go accompany the patient uh, on the trip to the operating room and hospital staff and administration will line the halls uh, and just have a moment of silent reflection as the donor comes by just to show uh, their respect and and honor that that donor's decision and that family's decision to save lives. Um, so we still do that. We can still do that even transferring to the donor care center. So we do an honor walk the same way we would instead of doing it on the way to the operating room, we do it on the way to the ambulance. Let's talk a little bit more about like the benefits of what the donor care center and the donor care unit provide from the management and the recovery process of things. On the hospital side, staffing is a challenge. Staffing is tight everywhere. Um, this holds true today probably as much as it did even during COVID, maybe not quite as much, but um, anything that we can do to lessen that load on the hospital staff um, is of benefit, right? By getting the patient out, we're freeing up not only a nurse to take care of another critically ill patient that needs their care, uh, we're opening a bed that perhaps a critically ill patient is holding in the emergency room for. That patient needs critical care and they need to be on the critical care unit to get the best care they can. By transferring the donor out, we can take over the care of that donor in our facility and open a bed. We can have an, another nurse to take care of them. Uh, the doctor that is on the unit is no longer responsible that, for that patient. You know, we take over care for them. So that's a, a tremendous load off the hospital to be able to get that patient out and uh, make room for another patient that needs that care. A lot of this got really sped up by COVID, right? Initially, we wanted to start very slow, bring in patients, just do the surgery first, get that down pat, then expand it to bring in the patient to care for them in our facility in the ICU setting. COVID just sped all that up. You know, nobody knew in the early days how COVID might affect uh, recipients and things like that. So we wanted to get those patients out as quickly as possible and lessen the exposure to other uh, potentially COVID positive patients. So the last thing you want to do is transmit a viral infection to an immunocompromised recipient, right? 
So, uh, and the hospitals were overflowing. They were at max capacity. So we really didn't have any pushback. They really were letting us transfer all the donors over to our facility. So it was like a crash course in um, DCC operations uh, during that time. So what about as far as, so we're talking more about, you know, the, the ICU um, how did it impact more of the OR process? The same thing that applies in the ICU applies in the OR. Again, it's staffing. Staffing is a challenge in the operating room as well. Um, by us being able to perform the surgical recovery here, we're not using the OR staff. We're not calling out an OR call team in the middle of the night. And that's very often when these organ recoveries happen. So uh, transplant centers to do the best job they can they really like to transplant organs in, you know, first thing in the morning or first part of the day when the transplant surgeon is nice and fresh and has been rested. Um, that's when they're going to get their best results. So we often go to the operating room very, very early in the a.m., you know, 2, 3, 4 a.m. So they can get that organ back to their center and transplant it first thing at 7 or 8 o'clock, uh, which is when they have the best results. Everybody's nice and rested. Um, the transplant just goes smoothly that way. So that's a big thing. Uh times in the hospital, in the operating room, are um, nothing's ever fixed, right? So uh, hospitals regularly get emergencies that come in. So we set an OR time and we have multiple teams coming in from different states all over the country. You might have three or four different teams flying in um, to, to retrieve their organ to bring back to their recipient. And if the hospital has an emergency comes in and they need that call team or that team to attend to that emergency, guess what? You're getting bumped. Yeah. Um, you're at their mercy, right? So you're at the mercy of the trauma gods. Uh, here, we don't have that. If we set an OR here, it's the best time for all the teams to get here. It's the best time for the transplanting surgeon to go back and transplant that organ. Um, and there's no getting bumped. There's nobody else waiting on that OR. There's no emergency coming in. We have one patient and we can make sure that when we set a time, that's the time we're going. Um, about the outcomes we have at the donor care facility, we look at lives saved through, uh, through a single donation. We often look at the number of organs transplanted per donor, which equals out to the number of lives saved, right? So we wanna maximize that number. And when we do donation cases in our facility, what we see is an increased number of organs transplanted per donor, which means an increased number of lives saved. Just looking back at our data, the number of organs transplanted per donor in our facility versus done in the hospital is almost 0.5 organs per donor. So if you look at that as a number of patients needed to treat to save a life, because one, one organ saves a life, right? You find me another treatment, surgery, medicine, where the number of uh, number needed to treat to save a life is two, you don't see that in medicine. So um, the outcomes speak for themselves, I think. And um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, timing is a big thing. And we'll, I think we'll talk about that um, in, in our next episode. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that. One of the things that I think that we could bring it all back to is a donor family. How has this impacted the donor families? Because, you know, we talked about it before where, you know, the staff, you know, the staff was there, they were a part of the process, the family was there, and oftentimes they would stay until, you know, their loved one um, went down to surgery. 
Now, it's a little bit earlier on in the process whenever we're transferring that donor hero to the donor care center. So how has that impacted the family? In my previous role, I worked as an organ recovery coordinator uh, at the bedside, and I worked with and interacted with donor families day-to-day as, as part of my role. And what you often see is it's very difficult for them to walk away and and start their next phase of their grief journey as long as the patient is in front of them in the bed. Um, being the brain-dead organ donor, they're still hooked up to the ventilator, there's still a heartbeat on the monitor, the patient is still warm to the touch. Although they know that the patient is deceased, it's very difficult for them to pick a time, say a final goodbye, and go, and go home. and and to care for themselves and to start the planning process for the days to come, which include funeral services and things like that. By us transferring, what I've found is that I think a lot of times it really does them good that we're going to take the patient from the hospital and bring them to our facility because it gives them an opportunity to have a hard time set to say goodbye for, for that stage and know that the next time that they see their loved one will be at funeral services. Oftentimes, they've been in the hospital for days and nights and days and nights. Yeah, because you're, you're talking about, uh, the, you know, the managing and the recovery of, you know, this donor it could be 36 to 48 hours, but the injury or what brought them into the hospital could have been days before. Days so they've days never before. left. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Makes sense. They, you know, they haven't been getting good sleep at night. They haven't been eating well. Um, they're exhausted, absolutely exhausted. Um, so it gives them an opportunity to go home, to take care of themselves, to lean on their family for support, and then start considering, all right, what are the next, the next, the coming days and weeks look like? Whether it's the family advocate that has supported them during that initial conversation of donation, or someone like yourself that is, is continuing that support and, and continuing the process of donation to recovery, Um, You know, I've always admired and been inspired by the work that you all do because one of the things that that I've always heard you all tell them is that their loved one will never be alone. So even if they leave, they're still never going to be alone. And there's always a person that they can call, you know, to get an update or to just talk with, you know, even down to our family services. So, you know, I think that that's the, really what I wanted to end today's episode on is just how the, the family was impacted. And I look forward to jumping into more conversation in the next episode. But thank you for being here today and sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And remember, you're a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams, and we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.